Hello, everybody. Once again, I am back. Sorry for the slight delay in podcast episodes. It's been a bit more than two weeks. I've been busy doing things and stuff. And I'm going to try something slightly different this week, which is not using an explicit script. So you can't read along with this for this week. And just basing it on general notes, which will probably make the flow of it sound better. Let me know if you prefer this over what I was doing before. But this is essentially going to be a part three of something that was initially only going to have two parts, which is the idea of the crypto rhizome and the connection between blockchain and cryptocurrencies and QAnon and other sort of far right content. I have decided to make another one because there's a lot more information that I think is quite interesting on the subject that I've been researching for a QAnon Anonymous episode that I wrote that is a premium episode. So I would recommend checking that out if you have the premium for that. This is going to sort of go concomitant to that and will be a sort of more theoretical dive into what I was talking about in that episode, which is alt tech and this idea of you know, alternative social media sites that were, are meant to replace places like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, etc., and are directly targeted for conservatives who have been quote-unquote censored on those sites. Usually, again, the common theme you find is censored for doing anti-Semitism. The main concept I want to bring in is this idea, and I've, I've mentioned this sort of before, but this idea of disruptive innovation, or generally disruption. I talked about this in relation to, and I think this was on the premium episode, so patreon.com slash dollars a month to access this, but Nick Land's writing on how cryptocurrency sort of disrupts older markets. So it uses this technological innovation to create a market that is more efficient, that destroys older markets. And the obvious example is Henry Ford. Instead of, you know, selling horse-drawn carriages, he creates a new product, which is an easily a producible car because cars had already existed for 20 odd years before him, but were luxury items and weren't mass produced. So he or his, you know, his workers basically created a much cheaper to produce car with, you know, the assembly line, etc. that destroyed the previously existing market, which is that of the horse-drawn carriage and introduced an entirely new market. So again, this idea that blockchain has this capacity to alter older existing markets uh, particularly in relation to market relations contingent upon fiat currency, that it is a decentralized apparatus that is, according to blockchain entrepreneurs, more preferable to that fiat currency because the government can't, you know, force you to not have a transaction, doesn't have the capacity to print money, you know, all this, you know, the you could think of also like the standard sort of libertarian hatred of, of fiat currency and how it's, it's administered by the goddamn government, etc. The idea of disruption, especially in relation to blockchain, is actually much more intimately connected with alt tech, because alt tech is also sort of an attempt to disrupt previously existing social media sites by not moderating anti-Semitism, basically. But it's actually a lot more connected to that phenomena than I had realized before. So the idea of disruption is very common in business jargon. If you'll notice, if you're at all experienced or exposed to this world, you know, Amazon uses their e-commerce model to disrupt non-Amazon affiliated vendors. Uber is, you know, disrupting the taxi industry, for instance. 
there's a book that I'm skimming at the moment called Creative Destruction in the Sharing Economy, which basically, you know, it's a Austrian school guy, so it's an entirely uncritical view. But the essential argument is that Uber, with its sort of technological apparatus, is far more efficient than taxi services. An example you can think of this that relates to society of control is that Uber uses traffic patterns and the data that one can collect through traffic patterns, this is even like tracking cars that have GPSs in them, to better route their cars to pick people up and to assign orders, etc. Uber is also, of course, using the quote-unquote sharing economy, basically destroying like any capacity that the taxi cab driver or taxi, dri- taxi cab driver who now becomes an Uber driver would have to strike, for instance. You see this with Prop 22. Not considering Uber drivers uh, actual employees. So yeah, that's the overall model of disruption. And, and for the most part, the most common examples of disruption relate to things like Uber and Amazon, other Silicon Valley tech companies and their growing sort of prevalence in our society, prevalence in our lives dependence on them to like rent out their services which again relates to the platform business model and the sharing economy so that we can survive this is what disruption usually is although in in many cases does not necessarily involve technological innovation it's just simply disrupting an older market by providing a new service that makes that older market obsolete you can see how you know christensen who sort of creates this concept, uses technological innovation here. In a certain sense, we can also imagine, and this is a, this is a stretch of the idea, but it's a sort of similar logical concept, that capital sort of disrupts pre-capitalist societies, forcing the peasant who worked on the commons, you know, in the manor, on the feudal mode of production, into the cities, into the factories, and doing so for the sake of profit. So, you know, disruptive innovation is meant to be sort of a happy, cheery way of explaining this phenomenon. When in reality, most processes of disruption, especially on a larger scale, are also processes of like dispossession and increased powerlessness for the least powerful, you know, these types of things. So in uh, the primitive accumulation of capital, we can analyze, let's say, Britain, for instance, because this is the, the, the case that Marx analyzes with primitive accumulation of capital, which basically means the earliest stage in which capital is accumulated. That's what primitive accumulation of capital. It's a it's a chapter in um, Capital Volume 1. But that the enclosure of the commons in Britain involved the closing, of course, of a set of economic relationships that were less profitable and the reintroduction of a set of economic relationships that make more money. So you disrupt the feudal mode of production for the sake of the generation of capital. So obviously the feudal mode of production in Britain and in you know most of Europe and, and in other uh, feudal sort of serf relationships was generally built around the commons. So there was a land which the peasants had a right, so to speak, to labor on commonly. And the process of enclosure was essentially contingent upon private owners buying up the land that was traditionally for the peasants to use commonly. So the peasants would, you know, use it for general agricultural things, creation of hay, livestock grazing, etc. And the phenomena of enclosure 
created more money for those who privately owned the land. And also, a surplus of laborers whose labor was previously contingent upon these commons. So, the surplus of labor was then generally, over time, driven into the cities, where these laborers began to work in the factories and became proletarianized. This is, in a certain sense, a disruption of an older economic relationship for the sake of profit. And obviously, to have experienced this, the primitive accumulation of capital, from the perspective of a peasant who then was kicked off of their land, essentially, and forced to just wander into the city and take whatever job that you could because you need to feed your family, was a, it was a miserable experience. It's contingent upon force, as, as Marx argued against Smith's argument that it was a mutual exchange. And it sucks. I mean, you can think of this also with the, the shift from taxis to Uber. It's not nearly as radical of a change, obviously, but it's a similar phenomenon, this, this phenomenon of disruption. You push the labor around where their labor can best be arranged to generate surplus value for the ruling class, so for the, the capitalist. This also relates to Marx's idea that capital wishes to proletarianize everything because you disrupt the sort of pre-capitalist social and economic relationships to create this massive pool of semi-skilled laborers that can move around based upon where the most profit off of their labor can be made. This is also, of course, why Marx thought that socialism was inevitable, because this massive process of proletarianization, these proletarians who got larger and larger and larger as capital began to accelerate, would be like, hey, this is bullshit, right? Look, look around to each other and be like, well, we should do a revolution. You can meaningfully argue that this process, to a certain extent, has halted, or that the process of disruption looks a lot different than Marx might have predicted it. Uber is a great example of this, because especially with Prop 22, where Uber drivers are not legally considered workers, like, it's very difficult for you to strike. You know, you have to do like wildcat strikes, basically, like illegal ones. It's also very difficult for you to even meet your fellow employees. You're in your car all day. You get alerts from the app on your phone, I think. I've never been an Uber driver, admittedly. And then you go the places it tells you to go. So maybe Marx has accounted disruption and its effects. You know, obviously Marx did not call it disruption. I'm sort of extending the, the analogy or extending the concept to a place where obviously the creator of the concept would not, not be happy with me extending it to. But maybe his, how Marx sort of accounts for a similar phenomenon as disruption is not what it actually looks like. But basically, uh, disruptive innovation or disruption in general, or creative disruption is another sort of similar concept in economics, um, are, is an agent of chaos in an economic system. It's the freaking joker, basically. And it's all about the money. It's not about setting the message. Um, okay, anyways. Uh, works to basically untether already existing social slash material relationships and retether them in a way that makes more money. Uber is obviously at constant odds with capitalist regulators who are working to sort of slow the engine of capital and not stop it, obviously, but slow its capacity to accelerate, disrupt, destroy already existing social relations. Because if you disrupt it too much, society just collapses. The Uber driver and the worker who existed within the sharing economy in general 
is an even more untethered, disconnected individual than the traditional worker, obviously. So the sharing economy, or platform capitalism, is basically neo-serfdom. It's not feudalism on the Marxist account, because feudalism is a mode of production, but it's serfdom, which is a part of feudalism, obviously. You have no capacity to organize, you don't own anything, you depend on massive institutions to provide you the things which uh, they can revoke if they wish. So, you know, basically, it's feudal in the sense that it is a massive extension of the rentier class as a way to sort of re-territorialize, again, to use Deleuze, because Deleuze is subtly within all three of these episodes, as a way to re-territorialize the further acceleration of capital. It's very ironic, of course. We can think of the process of disruption as starting with the feudal mode of production and destroying it, upending it, readjusting it uh, to meet the, the new capitalist mode of production. And then here's this ending point, which it's, it's probably not its ending point, but it's the, the, the position we are potentially, um, hopefully not, but who knows, uh, moving towards. And the point we're moving towards looks exactly like this beginning point. It's serfdom, right? That's bad, obviously. Um, but a particular note of what I want to talk about today is the disruption involved in alt-tech websites. So these are alternative, basically far-right versions of social media sites like Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And again, if you have a sub to the QAA Patreon, QN Anonymous, which is a, a, a very good podcast that I contribute to every now and again, there is an episode that is out where I go over this idea and a lot of the different alt-tech sites in more detail, less theoretical detail, obviously, and more sort of uh, um, description and a, a general broad account of it, which is definitely working alongside, again, concomitant to, to this episode. So it'll help you understand what I'm talking about here more. But what I basically noticed from doing research for that episode, I talked about, I believe, Parler, Gab, this website called Odyssey, as well as CloudHub. So those are four alt-tech websites. But doing research on them, what I noticed is the prominent use of blockchain technologies to host many of these alt-tech websites that are dedicated to banned far-right posters. The blockchain protocol for Ethereum is the one which is typically used in these contexts. So they, they use the public ledger created by the blockchain. Again, I explained this more in one of my earlier premium episodes, I believe the part one to this series, so this $2 a month. But the public ledger created through the cryptocurrency stores data about, you know, like videos, uh, uh, blog posts, etc. So it makes it very easy to access. It makes it decentralized and way less moderated. Although for Ethereum, there is a process of moderation. It's, it's less decentralized than something like Bitcoin. Using this, we can imagine that the baking process of QAnon, so creating the meaning making around the Q theory, can literally be stored on blockchain. And this is hilarious because this works basically from what I was saying for the last two episodes, which is that blockchain and, and QAnon are structured very similarly. But it makes it not an analogy, it makes it literal. It's like, yes, no, the similarities have been noticed. And, and there's a blog post made by the founder of Gab in, 20, in 2017 after they got their domain registry removed for hosting anti-Semitic far-right content, uh, which is not the last time this would happen uh, because of Gab's involvement in the 2018 
uh, Pittsburgh uh, synagogue shooting. The 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 shooter had posted a lot of anti-Semitic far right, you know, white replacement, white genocide uh, conspiracy myths on Gab and had not been banned. But the the founder of it, very much so speaking of what I was talking about before, had a blog post on Medium from a now deleted account because, you know, big tech censorship on Medium uh, that read, quote, our choice was very clear to me. The post needs to come down. This is anti-Semitic content. If it does not, we lose our domain. To my knowledge, there are no pro-free speech domain registrars, and that is a massive problem. Our only other option now would be to play a cat and mouse game by transferring our domain to another registrar. Others who have attempted to play this game have failed, and even have had their domain seized completely from under them. We will not play these games. We have little choice for now. The free and open internet as we know it is under attack. It is centralized and controlled by no more than a handful of companies who provide these services. Hosting, DDoS protection, payment processing, domain registrars, mobile device hardware, and software distribution. Without any of these things, an individual website cannot possibly compete and operate at scale. If left unchecked, these centralized platforms will continue their dominance and control the means of all information, personal data, and communication on the internet. It's not too late to save the free and open internet. Decentralized platforms built on the blockchain, including Gab in the near future, which side note, is weird because they didn't really do this. So I don't know what, he, what he's talking about here. Will inevitably give the power and control to the people and make the internet censorship proof. Gab wants to lead the creation of the next level of the internet. If Web 2.0 was about centralized social and mobile networks, Web 3.0 will be a decentralized, blockchain-based, radically transparent, people-powered internet structure. So, end quote. So, there's a lot going on here that's just so perfect for what I was talking about. You know, Web 3.0 is this disruption of the centralized sites like Twitter, Facebook, etc. Using the blockchain technology. And of course, all of this is for the purpose of basically allowing people to post anti-Semitic content. So it's allowing people to bake. Like, I mean, it's very on the nose, not just like analogically similar, but just they have an effect on each other. So the decentralized system of blockchain can actually be used to host sites that proliferate far-right content. Using technological innovation to disrupt older social media structures, you know, be open, decentralized, etc. Subsequently, allowing for a haven for far-right content. Blockchain and all tech sites are very, very similar in structure, and many of them depend on each other or are interrelated. They're against like a central managing service that can moderate things, whether it's, you know, a currency or it's, um, you know, content online, and cutting off particular groups of people. And we all know which particular group of people that at least alt tech are concerned with this central authority cutting off. It's not just an analogy. Gab, for instance, used an ICO, which is an, an initial coin offering based upon Ethereum to raise millions of dollars after like PayPal, for instance, denied them service. So the Ethereum blockchain can be used as a way to sell shares of a company. So this is an ICO. So they sold shares of their company in a very decentralized way, far easier than going public on the market using uh, Ethereum. 
So maybe this is what Gab was talking about with the being based upon blockchain. But there's there's a there's a more intimate level to which you can be based on blockchain than what Gab has provided. But nevertheless, you can see like PayPal is a traditional funding service that has a central managing system that says, well, funding something like Gab that's responsible for, you know, later would be responsible for the Pittsburgh uh, synagogue shooting is not a good idea. So we'll cut them off. But the way that Ethereum is structured, that cutting off doesn't happen or it can't happen or it's much harder for it to happen. So again, I said previously that blockchain was a metaphor, that it was structured similarly to Q, but it seems to be obviously even more than a metaphor and will continue to be less of a metaphor in the future. But you can, you can use blockchain even further than this decentralized funding mechanism um, to, to generate literally the data on a social media site. And this is sort of the most interesting detail that I think I'll go more into on the premium after this. But you can use blockchain, particularly contingent upon Ethereum, which is a technology that t- basically takes Bitcoin and extends it beyond simply money. So as we saw before, uh, shares of a company can be recorded on a public ledger and the transfer of shares on a company through Ethereum, it's not just cash. So relatively advanced coding can be sort of encoded, for lack of a better word, onto these transactions and onto the ownership of it. The public ledger inscribes the data for videos, blog posts, etc. publicly using blockchain, which also means anyone can create their own protocol slash app to access this public data, which is, you know, basically a disruption of traditional social media sites using the technological innovation of blockchain. There is a market for it because there are people who are being banned on these social media sites, you know, for posting anti-Semitism, basically, and they are willing to spend potentially money on on sites, especially those sites that will support them posting anti-Semitic content. And the best way to do this the way that is probably hardest to be quote-unquote cancelled is through these decentralized blockchain systems. So going into the future, I think what we will notice is that the way in which I put the similarities between blockchain and QAnon as analogous, it will become less and less analogous. Blockchain, I think, is not going away. I think it's very significant. It's like Benghazi. It ain't going away. And it will continue to become more significant. And I think there will be an uptick in the use of blockchain for these types of websites and to allow for the proliferation of far content. This disruption obviously does not come for free. Again, as I talked about before with Uber, there's a reason why the legislators want to sort of stop this in particular instances. They don't want the disruption to happen because it's a, an agent of chaos, so to speak. And with that, and with the new social relationships that come after the disruption, there are downsides. One of them being that data being entirely public, even if you know, some of the data is encrypted you know, end-to-end, so like private messages through the blockchain can still be encrypted, and passwords, etc., so cannot be accessed publicly. But data being essentially entirely public, even if some of it is hidden through cryptography, means it's easier to find holes within the security of websites. So the Minds website, as an example, which is a a more prominent alt-tech blockchain website, has been criticized multiple times for for, uh, security breach problems. 
and potential weaknesses that are entirely accessible to anyone who wants to look because the data is public and how the data is stored is public. It's on the public ledger. So there are multiple reports of security issues with the site. But in general, this disruption is obviously double-edged. And we can think of maybe if far-left content starts to be moderated, if it's deemed not uh, beneficial for Twitter to allow communists on their site, that maybe the left could use this type of thing as well, at least as a means to communicate. And and there's an extent to which, like, okay, having, like, a left-wing Twitter isn't important for organizing. And obviously, all of this and all of the, for instance, the CPAC criticism of big tech and how it's, like, 1984 for censoring conservatives is just super online. That's all it is. Like, you're not actually being censored. You're not oppressed. You're just very online. But But there are other instances where this sort of, the prevalence of blockchain can be used on the left as well. So we can think of like strike funds as an example, especially strikes that are illegal, which might become a more common occurrence, especially given the increased potential prevalence of things like Prop 22 and Uber not being legally required to consider its, its workers as employees. One of the only ways you can strike there is illegally. And you could think of blockchain and crypto as a way to generate those strike funds much easier because the government is central authority that is definitely not going to want people to strike illegally or do illegal things in general. It has a much harder capacity to limit those transactions. They might be able to survey them to a certain extent, although it's easier for wallets to be more anonymous, but it can't stop it. So, you know, the generally left-wing funds for things that are illegal could very easily be utilized through crypto. That was a a fractured sentence, but I think you know what I mean. Also, of course, it is utilized by the far right, as we've seen. Um, Hundreds of thousands of dollars went to a couple right-wing influencers like a month before the January 6th insurrection. and. And that was done through uh, 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 crypto, through Bitcoin. And it's impossible to really know who that wallet was. I think Nick Fuentes got like 100,000 or something incredibly high. And it's impossible to know what that interaction was. Obviously, this is going to be more prevalent among the right at the moment. And they can jump on it because they are more organized than the far left, particularly like the insurrectionary far left. The, the far left is too busy voting for Joe Biden, for the most part, I think. And also, the right obviously has more money than the left. That's always been the case. You, you know, that's always going to be the case, probably. But I'm not meaning to say that blockchain is good or bad as a result of this. I think of this, like, general acceleration of capital, where it's like, it's going to happen anyways. The Blockchain is going to be more prevalent. Capital is going to accelerate. So we better understand the good elements of it that we can take advantage of and the bad elements of it that make things a lot worse. So yeah, I'll go into more of my thoughts on this on the premium for $2 a month, patreon.com slash levegar. Let me know if you like this sort of more loose way of doing it as opposed to like a script because... That's less work for me, and if it's better, then I might as well do more of it. But yeah, in particular on the premium, I'm probably just going to talk more about the specific websites I found and how blockchain technology is actually making alt tech more useful, 
more notes on the idea of disruption and the sort of Deleuze-Ogatarian way of conceptualizing disruption, and I think more on Gab and that blog post, because I think it's, again, super interesting and super revealing to the sort of alt-tech business model and how much of a saving grace blockchain is to them and how much harder it would be to do a lot of these things that they're trying to do, which is essentially create a business model that gives a platform to Nazis without blockchain. So yeah, I'll, I'll see you in the premium. And thank you to Please Don't Fire Us for being on the $20 tier on my Patreon. Much appreciated.